This is episode 51 of Dave's Daredevil Podcast, and Daredevil 101 continues as we find Matt Murdock starting over again, putting the past behind him and leaping into an all-new first issue. Welcome to Dave's Daredevil Podcast. This is the 51st episode of the podcast dedicated to Marvel's Man Without Fear, Daredevil. I am J. David Weeder, but of course, you can call me Dave. I host this little shindig. And this week is a brand new installment in my series within a series called Daredevil 101, which is all first issues, all the time. The goal is to try to give starting points for new relapsed fans coming back to Daredevil because of the Netflix series. And remember, as part of Daredevil 101, if you share this week's episode on Facebook or Twitter, you can actually be registered to win a free digital copy of this issue through Comixology, courtesy of me. That's right, it's that easy. Just share this episode on social media to try to get the attention of those new relapsed fans, and you could end up with a free digital copy. Win-win. So after you share it, the winner will be chosen midweek at random, and I will contact you and get some information from you. And speaking of the Daredevil Netflix series, as this episode is dropping, it's here. It's out. You're probably streaming it right now, which means I'll get probably the lowest download numbers for the show in a long, long time, but I'm okay with that because the show is going to be there waiting for you. But right now, you should be definitely streaming that show. Now, I will be streaming it this weekend as well, at least the weekend of this release. And then on Wednesday, April 15th of 2015, I'm going to drop a full special all around that Netflix Daredevil special. What's good? What's bad? What was the experience of binge-watching that entire series? So look for that this coming Wednesday, the 15th. And of course, since it's April, when you hear this, spring is in the air. Temperatures are hopefully warmer. But as I'm recording this, it's still February. Snow is on the ground as I speak. It's been a couple of storms. Overall, not that bad. But this past weekend, I was snowed in a little bit. Roads weren't that great. So I decided to just camp out. And I've been doing some reading, not just in Daredevil. Of course, I do that for the show. But I've also been reading the Howard the Duck Omnibus. I had to get it. I had to do it. Now, admittedly, the full run of the series itself is on Marvel Unlimited, but the omnibus includes the Man-Thing material where Howard made his debut, uh, some material from the Howard the Duck Treasury Edition, as well as the issue of Marvel Team-Up. And if you're not familiar with the series itself, if the 1986 movie is the only frame of reference you have, get thee to Marvel Unlimited, because this is a solid, solid series written by mostly by Steve Gerber, with art by Gene Colan, and it really is exquisite. Now, this is a creative team that we're going to meet soon within the pages of Daredevil down the road on this very show, but they really do some outstanding work. As odd as it is to state this, Howard the Duck is a story of the human condition, and yet it's told through an anthropomorphic animal. And yes, it's wacky, it's sometimes over the top, but the sense of humor is sharp. And you really grow to care for Howard. You really want to, even though he's a cranky curmudgeon, you want to be part of his world. So I can't recommend this omnibus enough. It's gorgeous, and of course Marvel does a great job with the presentation. The colors pop, the pages are great, and of course Marvel adds extra material. Things like Foom, a Marvel magazine, uh, just talking about Howard the Duck, as well as Steve Gerber kind of giving him some of his thoughts. 
Very, very good presentation. I wish DC would take a page from Marvel's book here because their omnibus editions, yeah, they look sharp. And I have several of them. For example, the Golden Age Superman omnibus. The colors pop. The art is sharp. Everything looks crisp. But there's no no real additional material. And if you're buying an omnibus, I mean, that's an investment. That's, you know, anywhere from 60 to to $100. It's a chunk of change. So I want a little bit back. Both my Daredevil by Frank Miller Omnibus and Howard the Duck Omnibus have some great supplementary material, but when I look at my Green Lantern Omnibuses, both Volumes 1 and 2, yeah, they have some great presentation, but they don't have any extras, so you don't immerse yourself. The same with the Flash Omnibus. Great collections, great look, but I like a little bit more from that, and Marvel seems to deliver that a little bit more. But again, solid work by Gerber and Colin. We'll be seeing them, of course, down the road. You know I love Gene Colan, so it was hard to resist Howard the Duck, and it was a great way to while away a snowy day. But that's really all I've got for preamble. I'm really excited to get down to this. I know I've got a lot of notes for this week's issue because we're talking about the 2011 relaunch courtesy of Mark Wade, the beginning of a highly praised, highly enjoyed, dependable run on Daredevil that shifts the whole attitude of the book and yet kind of plays with some of the same things we've been seeing. It's very interesting. We're going to talk a little bit more about that. Before I do, I'm going to play a quick podcast promo for my Star Wars story. If you're not listening to this podcast, seek it out. It's from Scott Rifen of Dinner for Geeks, and essentially it's Scott talking to people about their experience with Star Wars as children or as young adults, about being collectors, about the first time they saw the movie. It's very personal, and Scott really knows how to to drive that podcast to the right area. It's one of my must-listens now. So I'm going to play the promo for my Star Wars story. Uh, Once you're done listening to this episode and watching Daredevil on Netflix, seek that show out. So I'll play the promo, and I'll be back in just a moment. In 1977, the world changed. The film industry was transformed. The popular culture rocked. And young minds forever altered. Star Wars arrived. And nothing would ever be the same again. Though everyone wasn't affected in the same way, everyone was affected. This is my Star Wars story. My Star Wars Story, monthly at MyStarWarsStory.com And we have returned. Now last week, I talked about the beginning of the second volume of Daredevil that began with a Kevin Smith, Joe Quesada, Jimmy Palmiotti run. That particular numbering went for 119 issues, and it included runs from Brian Michael Bendis and Ed Brubaker, and then it rejoined the original numbering to coincide with issue 500. Ran just a little bit longer after that, up to 512 under writer Andy Diggle. This led into the Shadowlands story. Now, I'm not going to get into the nuts and bolts of the Shadowlands story, but long story short, it took Daredevil off the board a little bit. And then that book became Black Panther Man Without Fear. So when it came time to put Daredevil back on the board, it was at a time when Marvel was kind of freshening things up. Not quite Marvel Now level, but there were quite a few relaunches over the summer and fall. Captain America had relaunched, and the original numbering became Captain America and. You saw Punisher relaunch with Greg Rucka, Moon Knightly relaunched with Bendis, and The Incredible Hulk would relaunch with Jason Aaron. So it was ripe and time for Daredevil to re-enter the Marvel Universe. Enter Mark Wade. Now, Wade was a well-known, well-regarded writer. He had started out with Impact Comics, writing things like The Comet and The Legend of the Shield, and then went on to really big renown with a great Flash run. He also did the books Irredeemable, Incorruptible, as well as many, many things. 
To put it succinctly, he was at the top of his game. Now, Mark Wade, if you don't know, he knows his comic history inside, out, backwards, forwards. This is a guy that pretty much knows darn near everything. I don't like throwing the word expert around, but Mark Wade is as close as you get to a comic book expert. So, with Wade on writing duties, we brought in Paulo Rivera. Rivera is a very stylized artist. I knew him more from his painting work in the Mythos series of books, which retold the origins of many Marvel characters. Almost like an Ultimate style, but not quite. Just non-continuity retellings. Now, as I remember it, the hype and excitement for this relaunch was, at best, mid-level. I mean, it got attention, but it wasn't quite bombastic. However, the run that would ensue from this first issue we're about to look at would build hype by word of mouth. It was that good. So, let's take a look at this first issue, Daredevil number 1, from September of 2011. It has multiple covers. I'm going to look at the main one up front, and then we'll look at some of the subsequent covers a little bit further down in the episode, just for time. The cover shows Daredevil leaping through the air, Billy Club in hand blocking his eyes with one section of the club. And the background is comprised of shapes made from words. So specifically the sounds of that particular object forming the shape of that object. Which is kind of what endears me to this cover. I don't so much like Rivera's depiction of Daredevil here. I think the club in front of the eyes is a little bit too on the nose. And Rivera does that quite a few times in the issue proper. We get it. Matt's blind. Now the shapes form from the words are the genius part. It's one of the best depictions of the way Daredevil perceives the world. Just using the onomatopoeia. It's exquisite. The only thing I really don't know about, it throws me off and it just depends on the day, depends on my mood, on how it strikes me, is sort of the beige sepia color of the background. It really makes it look, I hate to say plain, but plain is about as close as I can get. Now it does kind of create just short of a real optical illusion because as you get closer the shapes become more prevalent which I think shows a little bit of craftsmanship. For example, the birds in the front, which are formed from the word flap, from the flapping of their wings, are very defined, as well as the rooftop closest. As these things get further and further back, they just sink into the distance, which, man, that's great storytelling. I won't lie. But the color just throws it for me, and I don't know why. It's just a personal preference, nothing more than that. We'll talk about some of the other covers in just a moment. Let's look at the story itself, which is entitled Man Without Fear, which is, of course, written by Mark Wade, penciled by Paolo Rivera, and they are joined by inker Joe Rivera, letterer Joe Caramanga, colorist Javier Rodriguez. Now, if you're wanting to track this issue down, there is a trade paperback, hardcover and trade paperback, I should say, of Daredevil by Mark Wade. It's just volume one. It'll collect several issues, but it's also available on Marvel Digital on the app itself or on Comixology and Digital Unlimited, which is where I'm actually reading it from. And jumping into the story, at a remote branch of the Metropolitan Museum called The Cloisters, Daredevil lies in wait high above a high society wedding. By high society, I mean a wedding that will unite two of New York's mid-level crime families. And Daredevil is there because he has learned that a hit has been planned. Sure enough, as the bride walks down the aisle, a hole seems to magically appear in the rug right in front of the flower girl. As a hand appears from the hole, Daredevil realizes that this is not a hit. It's a kidnapping. The Man Without Fear sweeps down, rescuing the Flower Girl, but causes chaos as it appears that he is actually the kidnapper. Daredevil jumps around the courtyard, dodging the holes that appear from nowhere, the signature power of the villain, The Spot. The Spot is using his power to create portals from location to location to literally appear anywhere he wants at will. Dodging the portals and the spot blows, which can come from anywhere, Daredevil keeps the girl safe while listening to the crowd for a guilty heartbeat. And Daredevil finds it in Sal Donarati, an inside man who's helping The Spot. Not that Sal's going to get away with it. No, no. One of the spot's holes opens in Sal's chest, and the spot reaches out to snap the accomplice's neck while Daredevil shields the flower girl's eyes. 
Daredevil hands the little girl over to the groom, plants a big wet kiss on the bride, and then takes the spot head on. As Daredevil is dragged into the spot's portal, he gets an idea and wildly flings his billy club line. The opening wraps with the front page of the Daily Bugle showing Daredevil's kiss with the bride and the spot with a billy club protruding from the Dalmatian-like spots on his costume, filled by his own portals. I'm going to stop there for just a moment. Now, the issue actually opens on page one with an introduction, sort of an overview of sorts, written by Fred Van Lenty, with art by Marcos Martin and Nate Picos, which is a simple primer on Daredevil, almost like an opening credits of a TV show. They're just little random vignette images, kind of telling Daredevil's background, Jack Murdock, accident, etc. I like this is here because this is a first issue. And yeah, I know it kind of builds off of over 500 issues before that, but this is still a first issue. It could be anyone's first issue. And I don't necessarily mean that rhetorically. I mean, it could be anybody's first issue. Of all the issues I've chosen, this is the one that I feel is probably the best jumping on point for a general audience. So having said that, jumping into the story itself, we find Matt at the Cloisters. Now, this is a real-world location. It was opened in 1938. Again, he mentions it's actually a basically a recreation of multiple monasteries, but not a real recreation of any specific building as a whole. It's a historical mishmash from different eras. There are many artifacts there from the collection of George Gray Bernard and acquired by John Rockefeller Jr. The building was designed by Charles Collins. Now, I did look this up on Google Maps. You do see the outside, and that kind of excited me because the first time we see Daredevil, he is braced between two buttresses, staring inside the window. Yes, we get the idea. He's an outsider looking in. But more striking is the level of detail on both the establishing shot of the cloisters, as well as this close-up. From the Google Maps, I was able to see from Street View, this is exactly what it looks like. These buttresses are there, the windows are there, and we have a great location to start this in. Yes, we're in New York, but we're really not in New York proper. So we're already out of our element with Daredevil, and Mark Wade is basically telling us up front, look, things are going to be the same, but they're not the same, if you know what I mean. Daredevil as a concept is there, but the approach and the attitude is going to be different. And after that simple statement, well, we jump right into the story. Here's Daredevil. Here's why he's here. Boom, we're moving. We're moving, kind of like a museum tour, and we're walking. Wade has really put a lot of thought into Daredevil's senses. For example, he hears the shift in the echoes of the organ music, and that's how he realizes this hole is opening. The landscape is changing. Matt's looking at an embossed invitation, and he actually has a moment to struggle to make out the groom's first name. Because at first he thinks it's Victor, but it's actually Vincent. I like that detail, and here's why. As has been pointed out in several emails and by myself, the approach to Daredevil's senses has been varying. Some writers basically ignore the fact that he's a blind man, and just have him operate as a standard superhero. And that takes away something special from Matt. Yet, other writers make the effort to really get into the mechanics and explain certain actions that we would take for granted through the use of these senses. Wade takes that and shifts it up to 11. And the art matches that as well. For example, things seen through Matt's radar sense are really defined by stripes and shadows. By that I mean it's a black background. The shapes are vague, and again, they're, they're little stripes in the black. So that's playing with color and just with definition. It's an image, and yes, you can make it out, but you still get the idea, oh, okay, this isn't seeing as we would normally think Daredevil is seeing. So essentially, we don't forget Daredevil's a blind man, but we do understand, yes, he perceives in a different way. And then the spot shows up, which really threw me the first time I read this, because, well, the spot, as I mentioned, he opens portals. He looks like a Dalmatian. He's got a plain white costume. And for a long time, he was looked at as kind of a mort. 
And he made a debut in Spectacular Spider-Man number 98. That was from 1985. And he was actually Jonathan Owen, who was working for the Kingpin to replicate Cloak's powers. Cloak is in Cloak and Dagger. Except when he got to this point, a machine shorted out. So his device backfired on him and he gave him access to a crossroad dimension. And again, he's looked at as a very minor villain, not a great threat. Yet here we have a very public kidnapping for a potentially huge ransom. And the details in these scenes that Rivera is giving us, they're astounding. There's a lighter on the table near the candles. And surprise looks on the bridesmaids' faces. The people in attendance all look individual. They're not stock faces. As well as the cloisters actually looking like the correct courtyard. Rivera really brings his A-game. Another thing that really struck me and made me happy is Daredevil's Billy Club is sort of back to its more basic classic version. I mean, he has the thong to hold on, but the top now actually curves into a hook. Now, by curves, I want to be clear. It doesn't do a rounded curve. The mechanics look fantastic. Basically, it pivots at about a 45-degree angle at two points, creating a square hook. So not only does it replicate the original concept of the Billy Club, it does it in a way that makes sense and that is very grounded. And this Billy Club, like some of his Billy Clubs before, can be combined for length into a staff. And throughout the run, even without Rivera, within Chris Samney, the Billy Club remains fantastic. And when Daredevil first sees the spot through his radar sense, it's one of the moments that really sold me on this run when I first read this issue. Just the thought process that went through it, because you're looking at the spot, and he has these holes in him. Daredevil can perceive the holes, even though, well, the normal eye would not see this. So the spot comes off like some weird M.C. Escher-looking shape. Now, even though the spot is looked at as a, as a mort, as just a lame character, Wade definitely amps that up more than a few notches, because we have the spot who can pop out of nowhere in a confined space. So within these few pages, we have this paranoia that's just incredible. Again, small space, Daredevil's trying to save this kid, and out of nowhere, the spot can grab her from anywhere, anytime. In another sharp way that Matt's radar sense is presented, we see the outlines of the people at the party as he's examining them, trying to find that guilty heartbeat. The heartbeats are defined within that character. So within the body, you see the register, almost like Arkham Asylum video games, and Sal stands out because not only is it broader, it's yellow. So visually, we're immediately on board. It's a very plausible way the radar sense could work. And this is a great way to redefine it as we're not looking within the concentric circles that Daredevil's radar sense has been defined by for so many years. We're looking at a true visual reimagining. And it brings a certain level of subconscious excitement to this because it is very much the same, at the same time very much different. And it freshens it up in the right way. And if the paranoia-inducing closed quarters made Spot a little bit more formidable, well, Spot snapping Sal Donorati's neck really just kind of sold that. We're dealing now with a relentless villain who's not above just totally killing somebody from within his own chest. That's terrifying. Now, on the theme of everything's the same but everything's different, we're coming back to a more swashbuckling daredevil. He's not brooding. He's not morose. He's almost, I wouldn't say having fun being daredevil, but he's definitely in his element and content to be daredevil. And this is sealed by the kissing of the bride. The moment when I almost applauded this issue. It gives her just a big wet kiss as her, well, husband-to-be is a little pissed. But it immediately made me laugh because Daredevil's being brazen in the face of true danger. The spot's still around, and he's about to face him. But before he goes, darn it, he's going to get that kiss in. And of course, Daredevil uses his wits, throws the billy club, and just makes a mess out of the spot, using his brain. Plus, well, it kind of blows the reader's mind. It's one of those things that is, you know, immediately kind of makes sense. But it's also something you would never have thought of. You know, the opening's more of a pre-credit sequence. We're in, here's the story, boom. But it's capped by the Daily Bugle front page. This is something that's going to be a theme. 
Wade's going to use this pretty much throughout the run to kind of recap what happened last issue. That way the story can move fairly uninterrupted. One of the best tools to be introduced in this, and again, we've seen this before within Wally Wood's run. Wade is using that knowledge of history to make something really kitschy and a solid way to expedite the story. Now, looking close, the photo credit is to a Gene Everett Wood, which is, of course, for Gene Colan, Bill Everett, and Wally Wood. Again, a detail that I just want to applaud. So as I mentioned, this opening is more of a pre-credit sequence. It seems standalone, and in most senses it is, but at the same time, while we're having fun and we get this villain captured, Wade is also planting seeds in these very first pages that's going to play into his long game that goes out over about 27 issues. This is uh, probably one of the most superb openings to a comic I've seen in a long time, especially when you look back on it from the end of a run that ran about 36 issues plus. And of course, this is the opening salvo. The issue definitely moves on, and that's what we're going to look at real quick as we jump into the second section. Sometime later, blind attorney Matt Murdock heads to court. While grabbing a cup of coffee from a New York coffee stand, he dodges questions about Daredevil. Matt has been dodging the questions for a while, since he was outed as Daredevil. His secret isn't that secret, but he does his best to maintain it, including trying to deny his superhero alter ego to the press, who are gathered in mass at his court appointment, trying to get a scoop on Old Hornhead. Matt's case doesn't really go any better, since it's a police brutality case, and the opposing side claims conflict of interest, you know, since Matt is Daredevil. The case gets a continuance, and Matt is forced to refer his client to another, less distracting lawyer. Later, Matt ponders his dismal day in court on a rooftop when he is approached by the new assistant DA, Kirsten McDuffie. McDuffie implies that Matt should think about the liability that he poses for potential clients, while also testing him for confirmation that he is Daredevil. Before she goes, Kirsten mentions that other lawyers were scared off the case that Matt's working on. And if she were Daredevil, the question she would ask is, why? Matt decides to do some investigating and dons his familiar Daredevil costume, arms his billy club, and leaps off. But he doesn't get far before his senses catch somebody on a nearby rooftop with a gun. But it's too late, the gun fires, but the gun does not fire bullets. It fires anti-radar chaff, blocking Daredevil's senses, making him vulnerable to attack. And as Daredevil struggles to get his bearings, the attack continues as an object flies through the air in the form of a round red white and blue shield and the issue ends what an ending before we get to the ending let's go back to the beginning of this segment Matt has had a really hard time putting the cat back in the bag so to speak since his identity was revealed once something like that's out in the open it's like toothpaste you can't really get it back in the tube not fully i love the interaction with Stu, the coffee guy because well rivera makes Stu give matt a really great look that simply says, I'm not buying into your bullshit. And Matt even tries to fake it out. Hey, I have a 20. That's a five. Oops. It, it, it's, it's charming. But at the same time, Matt is rebuilding and that's a theme to this issue. Really, Bendis and Brubaker took him on a dark journey that basically just shredded him. I mean, it should have totally crushed him, yet Matt is really trying to move on in a new fashion, which we're going to talk about as there's a backup story here. And again, Wade proves that he's got a great handle on these senses as Daredevil's able to figure out what time it is based on the position of the sun and the barometric pressure. I can't say that any other writer beyond Wade has had their finger on the pulse of how Matt's abilities work. I mean, it's just fine, fine details, and that's what draws us into this run. And even though he's standing amongst the press denying that he's Daredevil, Matt also has a moment where he gets cocky just before he goes into the courtroom. He throws his coffee cup directly into the trash. Again, we're right in front of the media, where he just denied being Daredevil. And of course, that cocky attitude is going to get taken down a few notches as, well, he fails his client. This guy's name is Jabroni. This poor guy. And really, I would think in the real world, the, the opposing counsel doing his line about Matt being Daredevil would be thrown out. I think it would be completely shut out of court because that is contempt. 
But it is something that needs to happen because we need to move on to a certain point. We have to put Matt in certain positions. Again, Matt's struggling to rebuild and move on. But it's not going to be easy. And so coming from that moment where he was cocky, getting knocked down a few notches in the courtroom, we find Matt standing on that rooftop, and his thought process is very humbled. Next time I won't let another lawyer hook me. And his final thought, his real core of his thoughts, that he has to kind of dig down to is he embarrassed Foggy. And this just says something to Matt. His real feelings are buried deep for a lot of things. I've talked quite a bit about Matt whitewashing things, trying to see the best in things, not necessarily looking at them positively, but trying to take out some of the negative because Matt has to retain certain levels of faith in himself and humanity. And because of that, he's really looking at the surface of that incident. Well, the lawyer hooked me. The lawyer totally owned me. But at the end of the day, he has to dig down and realize, you know, I just totally jacked up. I embarrassed Foggy, I embarrassed my client, and that's where the humility comes in. And we're seeing Matt really start to get down to the meat of things and start looking at what is there instead of what he wants to be there, what he needs to be there. Wade is somebody who has totally immersed himself in Matt Murdock and knows this character inside and out. We're looking at 14 pages in and he's already defined several things on Matt. And he's working to move the character forward by taking away some of those components that have blocked him in the past. And he's also moving forward by introducing a new character, Kirsten McDuffie. Now, she's going to be a player for a while, even up to what's on the stands now as, we coming, as we're coming close to the end of Wade's run. Of all Matt's romantic interests, she is everything that they weren't and more. She's actually up to the task of being with Matt Murdock and Daredevil. Karen wasn't up to that in a lot of ways. Some of that's because Matt pushed her away, but at the same time, she never really learned to reconcile the two. Not completely. Heather Glenn was a complete disaster and just terrible, terrible character. The Black Widow was the closest we ever got, but she's a little out of Matt's league, let's be honest. Sure, she could handle Matt being Daredevil and Matt at the same time, and the whole superhero lifestyle, but at the same time, her level, Matt's just not up to her level, let's put it that way. And Elektra, well, Elektra's just a train wreck, as well as Echo. Look, Matt's love life can be summed up very easily in a simple sentence, and that sentence is, that could have gone better. However, we have Kirsten, and Kirsten is one of my favorite characters introduced in this run. One of my favorite Daredevil characters, total, as far as the supporting cast. She totally calls him on it right up front, and doesn't buy into his denial. And her, one of her first lines is, you're standing awfully close to the edge, and Matt makes a retort, but at the same time, she immediately sees that not only is Matt physically standing to the edge, she sees what is actually going on in there. Matt's trying to suppress all those years that have shredded him, but at the same time, they're still there. They're still eating at him. You can only deny something like that for so long. It's like a severe indigestion. Yeah, you can push through and get on with your day, but that indigestion's still there and it's going to eat at you for a while if you don't take an antacid. So in the span of a few pages, she puts Daredevil on the right trail without saying, look, I know you're Daredevil, but the idea that she says, if I were Daredevil, that's the question I'd be asking, just tells me Kirsten knows what's up in a big, big way. And I, I should stop praising her so much, but I really do like her that much. She just doesn't take any of Matt's crap. And at the same time, she moves Matt to action by mentioning, hey, these lawyers were scared off the case. You might want to check out why. I'm not saying you're Daredevil, but if I were, that'd be the direction I'd go. So Kirsten McDuffie, for me, gets a big, big thumbs up. I don't know if I've made that clear in my rambling. So Matt jumps into action, and the Billy Club, this piece of logic, I, I didn't know I nitpick sometimes, both in good and bad ways, but this is a great nitpick, this logic they're applying. Looking at when he swings off, again, we kind of have that square curve. 
but at the same time there's a longer length and the curve actually touches the top of the wall while the bottom of the longer part braces against it almost like uh supports for uh window washers and their their platform which is probably the most logical plausible way i've ever seen the daredevil billy club used and i should mention that matt is just casually jumping backwards off the top of a roof he's that cool and then we come to this this cliffhanger We've set up a few things. We had a great opening, which in itself is a nice little daredevil vignette of sorts. And we've set up what's going to be a kind of an ongoing storyline. But at the same time, we end with a cliffhanger that is astounding. The radar chaff, which is a cool visual. And of course, we're dealing with complete chaos now. Matt is really blind. Somebody has pegged him, and we know who that somebody is. We see Captain America's shield coming at him. We're going to see a Captain America daredevil fight. Well, we're not. Not now. But if you were looking at the trade or going online, you could get that second issue. And the Captain America Daredevil fight is exquisite. So that's kind of the overall story. I'm going to come back a little bit and talk about the covers to this issue. And then we'll check out the second half of this book, which is a backup story of sorts. The second cover was by Marcos Martin, which we're going to talk about again in just a moment. The cover shows Daredevil in silhouette, raising his billy club, the red of his mask's eyes, his smile and the Double D logo are the only details we really see beyond the Black Shadow. And the background is green, with radar circles emanating from Daredevil, and scenes of violence and screaming are depicted in purple imprints. This feels just a little too noir for me. It tries to be Bruce Timm, but it never quite reaches what Bruce Timm brings to his drawings. It just flirts with it. And I think the coloring is what really throws me off. Daredevil himself looks a little too deranged. It just doesn't quite sell me, but it is what it is. It's an alternate cover. The next cover is by the great, legendary Neil Adams. We have Daredevil, radar sense emanating, plummeting headfirst toward the streets below, throwing both sections of his billy club toward the sky above him. It looks sharp. It looks gorgeous. The background is is highly detailed. It's dynamic. But at the end of the day, if you're to tear it apart, this doesn't make sense. It looks good, which is what a cover should be, but it doesn't make sense. Daredevil's throwing both sections of his billy club into the air. Neither one have a line attached to him. Almost like he's throwing that at an enemy that's above him. Did I mention he's plummeting through the air? He's going to need something to grab onto. Now, we can kind of assume that there's probably a flagpole or something, but if I think a cover should tell a story in its own way. But speaking of legends, the next cover is by John Romita Sr. It's hard to get mad at John Romita. And Daredevil leaps at the reader, a section of his billy club in each hand, firing their swinging lines. This one, as much as I love Ramita, and I do, I love John Ramita, this one ends up being the least exciting. It's got a great background in those concentric circles. The figure looks great, but he's in this odd stance that says, boo. Never really got me in there. Never really got me in. Still love John Ramita. This is just not the greatest cover in the batch. And then there was a fifth cover that was blank. It was nothing. It's a wide area for sketches, which was always one of the most ingenious yet most frustrating ideas Marvel ever presented. You're getting a blank cover. Now, admittedly, if you have access to cons and professionals, this is a great idea. But if you live where I live, you know, which is far away from any major con, at least a three or four hour drive, well, there's not much there to it. I want a little art on my book. But of all the covers, it's the Neil Adams cover that really sells me. Even though, yeah, I got nitpicky there, let's be honest. Even though I got nitpicky, it's still dynamic. It's gorgeous. It's Neil Adams. I mean, what more needs to be said about Neil Adams? I don't throw the word legend around very much, but people like Neil Adams and John Romita, they are the living embodiment of legend. So coming back into the book itself, 
we have a bonus tale, which was written by Mark Wade. This time, art was provided by Marcos Martin, who did the green cover, which is included within the book itself to introduce this story. And the story begins with an image of Matt Murdock in his tights with no mask looking over a set of tombstones. He thinks to himself that sometimes, just sometimes, he can see in his dreams. Matt is awakened by the crunch of Foggy's corn chips in the next office and charges in. Today is the day and Foggy is coming with him. Foggy declines to leave at first, but Matt drags him along anyway, and they make their way through New York streets, stopping at a fruit stand. After buying some fruit, including apricots, they enter the subway where Matt tries his hand at playing the violin. Well, it's horrid at first, but Matt is quickly able to master playing the instrument by ear to the delight of gathered listeners. Finally, Foggy tells Matt that they need to get this over with, and they make their way to the grave of Jack Murdoch. Matt explains to Foggy that his new, sunnier disposition is how he is coping with the last few years, which have been horrendous. Matt says that sometimes, just sometimes, he can see in his dreams, and he sees that he wants to live. He tells Foggy that this is how it will be, and walks away asking if Foggy can cope with that. Foggy hangs his head, and mutters that he's just not sure. And so ends the backup tale. The backup tale says a lot. It's almost an overall thesis for what the run is going to be and where Matt is. The letters column reveals that Wade... In his pitch, mentioned that Daredevil was living in the moment. And that's his secret to being the man without fear. He lives in the moment. Because the past is so horrible, if you look back, he's going to drag himself down. And looking ahead, well, certainly it can't be worse. Because there's nothing that he has not already weathered. The real visual treat for me is this sort of family circus, Where's Waldo type layout to the pages. And we have the senses depicted in different ways. A little bit more striking than what we saw in the main story in some cases. For example, we have this big two-page splash of Matt and Foggy walking through the sidewalks of New York, around a corner. We see in small squares that, well, here's the sound that Matt is seeing because we see the circles. And one is an open manhole. Somebody cursing into a phone. The scent of pizza on the back of a delivery person's bike. Honking down the road. Matt even notices, hey, there's a cute girl that uses tea tree shampoo, but this other one has a smoker's cough. This really stands out because it's almost, I don't want to say interactive, but it feels that way. Almost like you could click these different areas, hear the sound, or smell the scent. It's just the way that the art is presented. And it does so for several pages, including Matt and Foggy walking into the subway. And it's, a, it's another great way to serve as a primer for Daredevil and how everything works, how he does perceive everything. But it's also a great way of how Matt is perceiving himself, where he's at mentally. So we get Matt's disposition... And then we get that statement to Foggy, which is a mission statement and kind of the foundation for the direction the series has taken. The tone is lighter in the series. It's more fun. It's more superhero. There's a swashbuckle to it. But that past and that woe is an aspect of the 80s and 90s. It's still there. It's an undercurrent. And when you have your foundation built on something from that, you know, it could collapse at any time. And Matt is really doing his best to just move on and, and just embrace what's in front of him. Again, live in the moment. Because really, he has no choice. This is where Matt is right now. He's had several years that were just horrible. And he can either lay down and die or get up and live. Now, the reason Foggy says that he's not sure if he can accept that is he is seeing that that undercurrent is still there. It could collapse. He's concerned for his friend. Matt knows it's there, but chooses to suppress it. Foggy, being a realist and being somebody who cares for Matt like a brother, wants his friend to really deal with what was there instead of ignoring it. In just these few pages that we have, they're meaningful and they echo all the way through this series. And I think it's a new way to do the same thing. Daredevil is still Daredevil. And yes, he has aspects of some of the more Stan Lee era Daredevil, as well as the Miller era Daredevil, or Nocenti, or even Bendis. 
But the perspective is from a place of a man who wants to live and wants to regain that passion that he had and keep the faith in humanity that he has to have just to operate. So let me give you my final verdict on this issue and we'll move into emails. Again, as I mentioned up front, this is the jumping on point of everything we're going to cover in Daredevil 101. This is the place I would point anybody. It's a fun read. You have a tone that's similar to Guardians of the Galaxy, that movie all the kids are liking. But it also takes continuity in stride. So you're not bombarded by the past, but you are given the pieces you need to. For example, Daredevil's identity being outed is mentioned. The fact that the past few years have been just rough on Matt. Again, we have a great opening, and it's a fresh artistic take. That concept, his abilities, Wade isn't reinventing the wheel at all. He's basically just giving it a fresh coat of paint and reinforcing it. He's replacing some of the spokes on the wheel, but it's still the same wheel. And again, this begins a long-term storyline. However, with that being a long-term storyline, the individual issues feel satisfying, which is something that's missing in most of our decompressed storytelling. The great thing is you can get this for fairly inexpensive and the great thing is this run is still in print. You can get it inexpensively. In fact, I actually double-checked on Comixology. For $49, you can actually get the whole run digitally. That's directly on the Comixology website, marvel.com website. It's not available in the app, but really, I would urge you to take that. That's a great deal. It's a great read. It's got some of the most inventive storylines in it that you've ever read in a Daredevil tale. It manages to be grounded, but take some of the wackier aspects and ingrain it in a way that makes sense. So this is the best starting point if you're a new fan, and it will lead you down a fantastic journey. So please, put this run on your list. But that is Daredevil number one from 2011. So now is when I like to move on to read emails. And of course, you can always email the show at dave at daredevilpodcast.com. This week, I'm going to do a single email for runtime. But I'm also going to do something I've neglected, which is talk about iTunes reviews. So first off is an email from Kane Dorr, whose subject line is simply episode 38. Kane writes, when you explain your fact-checking and looking for the real-life model subway tunnel that the story is set in, it reminded me of a great scene in Trial of the Incredible Hulk where Matt calls in to his assistant and has him take the map of New York down off the wall, set it on his desk, pull down the desk lamp as a stand-in for the sun, and place a ruler on the map to mark Fisk Tower, and then read off the streets that fell in the shadow of the ruler, a.k.a. Fisk Tower. This piece of information syncs up with another clue that Matt gets his hands on and he's able to find Bruce Banner before the cops do. That is, of course, from Kane Dorr. Uh, he mentions he writes fiction and podcasts at the following places. The Adventure Frequency, which is AdventureFrequency.com. The Dark Justice Podcast, which is DarkJusticePodcast.com. Moonlit Justice Community, which is at MoonlitJustice.com. And the City News Net Podcast, which is at CityNewsNetPodcast.com. As well as CrusadersMedia.com. And you know, Kane... I had completely forgotten about that saying I, I think I'm due for a rewatch of Trial of the Incredible Hulk because it seems to be coming up a lot lately. But for me, I mean, it's just the nerdy aspect. It's trying to ground a lot of this in reality. Tying that locations to the real world gives a tangibility to the stories in a context. And luckily, we live in an age of Google where we have a lot of things to work with. And Daredevil being set in a real world location of New York, it's always fun to track that down. And I, I'd like to think that some listeners will actually go check it out. But that seems to be something that I was really unsure how the response would be. I was always wondering if it would be an eye roll or, hey, that's neat. And my fear is I hope this obsession never reaches the point where I'm actually in the library with archive maps using the ruler and the lamp Indiana Jones style like in that movie. Let's hope we never get there. But I want to thank you for your email, Kane. And that's a great observation. And really, I think I'm going to pop in Trial of the Incredible Hulk tonight. So now I move on to iTunes reviews. I'm going to tell you up front, with a little bit of, well, 
happiness, but at the same time a little bit of awkwardness. They're all five-star reviews, which validates me, but also makes me feel uncomfortable because I hope I live up to that five-star review. So if somebody's browsing iTunes and they see five-star review, I hope the show is that expectation. But this is the first time I've come back to iTunes reviews since the show went on hiatus in July. So some of these go back away. Now, I'm not reading these to toot my own horn, but I am reading these because I appreciate them. I want to share them. And I also want to urge people that if you get a chance, please go on iTunes. Please review the show. Even if it's not five stars, we're cool. But the more you review, the more the show gets noticed and the more Daredevil fans can find the show and perhaps find a direction with the character. And that's another task that I hope I'm up for. But please take the time to not only email me at Dave at DaredevilPodcast.com, but go on iTunes, leave reviews, please. The first review is from, from way back, July 31st of 2014, from Zero to Hero. It's entitled Outstanding Show, and the review goes, I recently discovered Dave's Daredevil Podcast. At the moment, I'm listening to episodes back-to-back in order to try to catch up fairly soon, but I can't get enough of it. I've been a fan of Daredevil since the 2003 film, which I get a lot of grief for, but this podcast is excellent for any fan of The Man Without Fear. Whether or not you're a passive or active collector of the comics, Dave does an excellent job of recapping issues and adding his own opinion into the mix. He takes the time to engage with listeners and cares about what they have to say. Thanks for everything you do, Dave. Alright, I'm going to take a moment and blush. Next up is a rating from September 24th of 2014, entitled The Perfect Daredevil Podcast by Whispering Loon. And they write, if you're going to do a fan podcast, this is a great model to look at. A genuine love of the character, a general overview going in, a great wealth of knowledge, and yet not presented in an I know everything and my take on the character is best type of presentation. Listen if you like Daredevil, listen if you want to learn about Daredevil, and listen if you're interested in different corners of comic history. I'm really enjoying this podcast. And you know, I appreciate what's said there because my main statement at the beginning of this show, very first episode was, I am not an expert. I'm never going to saddle myself with that title, and I'm not going to allow anybody to saddle me with that title in, in conversely. I am a fan. As you mentioned, this is a fan podcast, and I do like to hear from listeners. I do want to engage. I want it to be, for lack of a better term that come to mind while I'm recording, I want it to be a safe place, a place where we can enjoy these comics. Its mission statement from the beginning has been, I'm going to read these comics, enjoy these comics, and talk about these comics, and that's it. And yes, with Daredevil 101, I'm trying to present an area where new fans can come in, which of course may increase my listenership, but it may also be a positive boon. I'm not out necessarily to make new fans, but I am out to kind of give fans directions they can go. So I would never sit down and tell you I know everything about this character, my take is best, because you can also go over to the other Murdoch papers where Christine has perhaps a completely different take on me and hers is completely valid as well. Or go over to manwithoutfear.com And these are all valid because we're just fans. None of us are true experts. Again, the closest I would ever apply the word expert is to Mark Wade. So I wanted to thank you for pointing that out and giving me a moment to stand on my soapbox and just make a point that, yes, this is a fan podcast. We're here to have fun. Next up is a review from November 13th of 2014 by Kyle Benning. Uh, It's entitled Blinded by the Might of the Greatest DD Podcast There Is. And the review says, this podcast is the best Daredevil podcast out there. Dave tackles an assortment of Daredevil eras and succeeds in comprehensively capturing what makes Matt Murdock tick. Few podcasters are able to so precisely pinpoint the soul of a comic character and add Dave's level of in-depth analysis to each issue. Add the catchiest podcast theme song on the internet and you have one fine podcast. Just listen to each episode for the third time and I can't wait for the show to return in January with all new episodes. Take the dare, I guarantee you that Dave's Daredevil podcast will fast become one of your favorites. Thank you, Kyle. 
and I can't believe you've listened to every episode three times. I mean, granted, I come from a vantage point where I have to edit the thing and hear my voice for at least twice the length of a normal episode, because I tend to ramble a lot. But I would think that that would be pretty grating. But as long as you're happy with it, I'm happy with it. I appreciate that, Kyle. Next up is a review from Gene Hendricks from January 19th of 2015. The first review since the show came back. And it's entitled, His Name is J. David Weeder, But You Can Call Him Awesome. Gene writes, Dave delivers a great podcast about an oft-overlooked superhero who give you all the background and analysis you need to gain a real appreciation for the man without fear. All this, and he uses Google Maps in figuring out comic books. Who could ask for more? And I failed to mention that Kyle Benning, on top of blogging at the Legion of Superbloggers.blogspot.com, also hosts the King Size Comics Giant Size Fun podcast, which is something where he covers basically oversized comics from the inside of his car. Likewise, Gene actually hosts the Hammer Podcasts, which he talks about Thor, but also talks about all kinds of things. Star Trek, Star Wars, you name it in geek culture, he's got it. Uh, Gene can be found at the Two True Freaks Network, twotruefreaks.com. And Kyle's podcast can be found at kingsizecomicsgiantsizefun.blogspot.com. So I apologize for almost missing my pimpage opportunity, but definitely check those out. Good friends of the show. The next review was from February 4th of 2015 by Hal Greenbaz. And it is entitled, If You Don't Want Another Comic Book Title to Be Obsessed With, Don't Listen to This Podcast. The review goes, I've always had a special place in my heart for Daredevil, but of late, for budget reasons, he's taken a back seat. This was until I started listening to this wicked awesome, sorry, from the Boston area, podcast. All I can say is thank you, Dave. Not only for the podcast, but for giving a real reason to try Marvel Unlimited. Hey, maybe they should pay you a commission for that. So now I have my Daredevil and read it too. Thanks again, Dave. You're wicked awesome. Whoops, there I go again. And the final review is from Jay Weber 121 It's from February 14th of 2015, Valentine's Day. It's entitled Great Podcast. And it reads, as a total foreigner to the comics, this is a great podcast to help me get a good idea of what this character really is. I unfortunately don't have the time to catch up by reading the books, so this has been great. Even though people who have actually read the books will always know more than me, I feel like I'm becoming at least competent in my understanding of DD. Thanks for making a great show. But I want to say I appreciate all the iTunes reviews. It really does humble me. It makes me thankful to be doing this, that there are people that are enjoying it. Again, as I mentioned last week in the 50th episode, I wasn't quite sure what the audience would be. But I'm glad to find that I have a passionate, stable group of listeners. So thank you. Thank you again. But I know we're running long this week, so I'm going to wrap it up. Remember Wednesday, the Netflix Daredevil special. But of course, you're probably watching the show as this episode makes its way through the feeds. I'll be talking about all 13 episodes, binge-watched for my pleasure, but dissected right here in a one-off special. Now, after that, next week, that's another Mark Wade Daredevil number one, and they both reach a turning point with an all-new, all-different first issue. It's a new city, no secret identity, and a heart-stopping chase against the clock in a ticking time bomb. That's seven days from now. Until then, justice may be blind, but it can see in the dark.
have been listening to Dave's Daredevil Podcast, which can be found at daredevilpodcast.com. You can subscribe to the show via the RSS link, iTunes, and other podcatchers. Or stream it on the Stitcher app, which gives you instant access to a wide range of audio programs. Email for the show can be submitted to dave at daredevilpodcast.com or through the website's handy contact form. The show is on Facebook. Simply search for Dave's Daredevil Podcast. And I am on Twitter as well. My username is at Dave Weeder. Weeder is spelled W-E-T-E-R. Daredevil and other Marvel characters are copyright Marvel comics. Any music or sound clips are used for entertainment purposes only, and no infringement is intended. This show earns no money and exists solely for entertainment purposes only. I am J. David Weeder. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>